2: And American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering.
0: How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false?
1: Fortress on a Hill aims to change that.
0: Welcome back, listeners, to Fortress on a Hill. Uh, We are keeping going. Biden has been elected uh, it seems right well, he's been elected looks like he'll be president uh, theoretically uh, and wouldn't you know that the problems have not yet been solved but give it a month i'm sure they will but uh, obviously we've got a thousand more things to talk about and as even the folks who we talked so much about on that you know Joe Biden foreign policy record episode right before the election that you know, everyone loved and we didn't get any pushback on none at all. I promise. Uh, You know, we talked so much during that episode about, Hey, regardless of where you fall on that, I think it was pretty clear where we did ultimately fall Um, people like, you know, Noam Chomsky and Cornell West and these key, you know, stalwarts of like the progressive movement and sort of anti-militarism where, where they fell, which is, Hey, like, let's get this guy, In office who we can maybe work a little bit more around the margins with and then don't take your foot off the gas pedal and no one's ever accused us here of doing that so we've got a lot more to talk about and a lot more guests and we've been on an incredible run for really about a year and it's no different uh today uh our guest today is uh dr ben freeman who is uh, a, a colleague and, and, and really, you know, sort of becoming a friend and just collaborator commiserator over at the center for international policy. He is the director of the foreign influence transparency initiative over there. And, uh, there's a lot of stuff cooking at CIP that we'll talk about, you know, a new blog, the Barraza, just so many reports and, uh, the stuff that Ben is working on and the stuff that's being worked on across the very all the different initiatives and programs over there have been incredibly timely with what's going on. So basic bio stuff. Uh, ben is, like I said, the director of the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative. Uh, what is what does he do there? Well, in general, he works to expose how foreign governments are influencing U.S. public policy and elections. Uh building upon you know, his book, The Foreign Policy Auction, which we'll link to, uh, really w- one of the first books to systematically analyze the foreign influence industry in the US. And I don't think that gets enough attention, uh, particularly in the mainstream, and particularly if it affects folks uh, besides Trump, right? You know, So the, the, the expansion of that to a broader foreign influence industry is interesting. Uh, before launching that, he was deputy director of the national security program at Third Way. Uh, prior to that, uh, Ben was a national security fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, POGO. Uh, and that was 2011 to 13. And, uh, you know, POGO does amazing work on revolving door. And they have... They, were cut, they kind of spun out of uh, CDI, Center of Defense Information, something that one of our other guests, Ben Cohen, has been like a big champion of and, and trying to recreate. And he's, you know, really, really supports the work of Pogo. While he was there, you know, he spearheaded their creation, the creation of their foreign influence database Uh, and a repository of kind of propaganda distributed by foreign agents. And that had been previously unavailable online or, you know, which is where people get their information. So, you know, very basic background. He got his PhD from Texas A&M. His dissertation looked at the ability of foreign governments to effectively lobby for economic and military assistance from the U S something that Henry and I have seen kind of in the breach uh, to a certain extent, in fact, uh, Henry, as a military policeman, is kind of the the guy for uh, <laughs> military assistance on some level and security force assistance uh, and Then, upon graduation from a m uh, he taught in the political science department at the Bush School of Government and Public Policy there at a m and he 's written in a, a whole lot of places in addition to his mega reports that are just wild, and I wish they would print in full. You know, in The New York Times, he writes shorter pieces that have been in The New York Times, Politico, CNN. He's testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, this is somebody that you need to know. You need to follow on Twitter and uh, and just check out. And I, and I know it's going to be a great conversation. So now that I have flattered you uh, more than you're comfortable with, Ben, thanks for coming on.
1: <laughs> Danny, thanks so much for having me. I I feel like I just want to have you follow me around and give that intro every time I speak somewhere.
0: <laughs> I could be like your theme music, except professionally, you know. Uh, <laughs> when I walk around, I feel like, depending on my mood, you know, rock sets, dangerous plays, or if I'm sad, rock sets, it must have been love plays. But it would be better, I think, to have, you know, someone giving you like a professional, you know, plot it as, as you walk around. So I'm in. I'm looking for work. And uh, and we could, we'll we talk about that offline, I think.
1: Sounds good. Sounds good. But, the, but, but, but in all seriousness, thank you for the great intro. I appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you for coming. And uh, you've you've kind of inspired me with your last reports. And we're going to talk about that as we go forward. I've sort of shamelessly plugged in link to them and and used it, particularly the think tank report that came out recently. Um, But what we, we had like a zoom call just to talk about some other projects and CIP and moving forward. And then just kind of, you know, social and discussing things. And, And on that zoom, we were joking back and forth a whole bunch about, the work we do, uh the beauty of it, the the tragedy of it, you know, the the difficulties and and why we wouldn't have it any other way and plenty of jokes about how if we, you know, if we wrote reports that were favorable to Raytheon, we'd probably have bigger houses and, and all this. Uh but I, I think that even though it's kind of a cliche on podcasts and interviews to, you know, say, oh, tell us your journey, I'm a big believer in human interest, backstory you know, how people get to where they are. And so, you know, if you could kind of just take us from, you know, you know, womb to the not yet tomb and kind of, uh, and, and that is a Nas reference kiddos. Okay. Pay attention. Uh, You know, just tell us your story, basically, like how, how you got involved in this work, why you cared and, and and how you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, It really begins kind of 20 years ago or so where I, I frankly, it, it, it begins in a place where, where where somebody who's, you know, now works in in, in DC and there's a very political world has no business coming from. Uh, my, my mother literally sells seashells by the seashore. Uh, I'm not even joking, her name's not Sally, but uh, otherwise I'm, I'm, not, I'm not joking. I'm, I'm from Florida and my mom uh, owns a shell shop. Um, and, and that was kind of the family business growing up. Uh, so, so when I went to college, I went to college to get a business degree. Um, uh, But but while I was in college, um, the the tragic events of 9-11 happened, um, and then then the Iraq War happened. I hadn't taken a political science class uh, in in my life, um, but somehow I I just sort of knew deep down that um, the decision to invade Iraq was, was wrong. And I didn't quite know why um and i i was one of my i come from a more conservative area of florida um and so i was one of the only people i knew that 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 really disagreed with that decision um and uh you know all my friends of course were saying you don't know what you're talking about shell guy you know go go, go back to the gift shop um and uh you, you know shut up about politics and you know being the nice florida man that i am i basically said uh hold my beer and watch this uh <laughs> and then i went to grad school for seven years and ended up getting a master's degree uh in, in a phd in political science and i, I I, I, I very much started, the, the, my interest in that, you know, was very much sparked by the Iraq War. And a big part of what's ultimately led me to where I am now is is understanding the foreign influence component of the Iraq War. Um, and, and that, of course, is is the Saudi lobby and really kind of the genesis of the, of the modern day lobby starts then. Uh, they hired on a firm called Corvus Communications, which uh, continues to be part of the Saudi lobby to this day, Uh, signed a multi-million dollar contract with them then, uh, and they continue to make millions from the Saudis to this day. Um, And and after sort of digging up all that dirt on Quervis and what was going on with the influence operation related to the Iraq war, uh, I never really turned back from from investigating foreign influence. Uh, As you mentioned, Danny, it's what I wrote my dissertation on at Texas A&M, um, and the good folks at POGO uh, were, were, were kind enough to hire a, uh, an, an ambitious academic nerd to do some more foreign influence work while I was there. Uh, also did some good DOD oversight work there too. Um, but I was able to so, sort of for the first time share kind of a, a, to a wider audience what I had been finding um, in, in this r- really like wild west of foreign influence work uh cuz this was well before 2016 um and I, I published my book before 2016 too um as as i joked with Danny privately um nobody cared uh frankly i'm i'm so not sure if my mom and dad read it uh, <laughs> because foreign influence just wasn't the issue then uh that it is now uh but of course then 2016 happens and suddenly uh, my phones ringing off the hook and everybody's very interested in this issue uh, once again and <clears throat> So I viewed it very much as my, uh, you know, I had an obligation to 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 share the insights that I had found to to share with other folks how to how to how to dig up information about what other uh, foreign governments' lobbyists were doing to to try and steer U.S. foreign policy in pretty bad directions. Uh, and, and and what I really do, I, I I do much less of the uh you know, Russian interference type type work. I do I, I call it the regular old mundane half a billion dollar foreign lobbying industry. Uh that's the work that I do and working to expose that and just explaining to people how influential that industry is in determining foreign policy. And it really doesn't even matter what foreign policy decision you're talking about. Uh, you know, whether it's uh you know, military assistance to a country, whether it's where we keep our bases, uh, which foreign countries, how many troops there? Uh, do we get in the Iran deal? Do we get out of the Iran deal? Just about every single foreign policy decision the U.S. makes, uh, there are some serious influences coming from lobbyists working on behalf of foreign governments.
0: Well, I like how you refer to it as the normal mundane uh, you know, millions of dollars and uh, influence of tragic, in its consequences, U.S. policies. And it's funny how, you know, you talked about the book that you write, your dissertation, your your subject. You know, it's not in vogue, right, for the longest time. Uh, yeah. And then it is, right? It's It's like it's interesting how subjects, you know, one subject can, uh, can be out of fashion until it's not. And while the the Russian story really piqued everyone's interest, well, you know, 60% of Americans or so 51%. I don't know of the voting <laughs> Americans. Uh, because, you know, Trump's a monster and he is and, and therefore he's, you know, colluding or, you know, quote unquote, with uh, Putin directly and all this. And so suddenly it gets in in the in the news and on the you know, on the uh, public consciousness, which isn't, you know, in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing because you've been pointing out how broad this is in the first place. And I was going to, I just wanted to ask you about 2001 and 2003, you know, timing wise, uh, you mentioned how that was so influential to you and how you kind of looked into uh, the foreign aspect of that, which I think has not been looked into enough. Um, you know, a lot of folks would say that, you know, there's really two ways to respond to nine eleven and especially to the Iraq invasion, right. There's only two ways that matter. And, and, and it seems like that would be in the, you know, in the common imagination, you either join the military and, you know, rock up and go fight mm-hmm. or you get in the streets, you know, with code pink or, you know, or whomever, right. Many of which I, uh, you know, collaborate with and enjoy uh and you know and and fight this thing from the outset and uh and while i'm sure that you've i don't know to the extent which you've done some of the latter you know you you kind of pick this other path that doesn't get spoken about uh which is look someone's got to do the real work of finding facts and offering the justification for policy or protest and so i was just wondering if you could talk a little about you know, career choice in terms of like inflection and, and and the nature of it, and and what you think the value of that is.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And and thinking back to that time for me, the you know I was in college, and so just sort of going college, going to college and observing that. And I think my my first, my gut reaction was it was the first one you you, you said was that you know we got attacked. I should join the military to fight back and and defend us. Um, and but then what I saw about the decisions that we were making, and that why I, I was giving that some very serious thought as soon as I left college that that I would do that. But then what I started to see was the it wasn't that there were no shortage of 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 the Ben Freemans of the world joining the military. Like that wasn't the problem. Like the it, at least the, the the way I saw it. The, it It wasn't a problem of a shortage of people, a shortage of good people joining the military. The problem was a a military leadership that would lead us, frankly, astray from uh, from Afghanistan and and hunting down Osama bin Laden to to start a war that we had no business starting. Um, And so then, you know, that's what sort of led me to, you know, look down these other. These other, you know, what could possibly lead us to to make such a, a foolish foreign policy choice? Um, I, 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 of course, ultimately gravitated towards the 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 foreign lobbying element of it that 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 led us to it, and spent a good bit of time documenting that and um i've i've never really stopped looking at the saudi lobby in fact just this very morning i was looking up information on the saudi lobby so you know almost 20 years later i'm still i'm still on the beat. um and I, and, and i think the reason why i do that and and, and the reason why i think that that that's very important to do i i love uh you you, you know code pink and, and medea benjamin and the folks who get in the streets i i think that's incredibly valuable um, I just think for me, my my unique contribution is, you know, I'm kind of a nerd. I'm good at (laughs) I'm good at connecting the dots. I'm good at I'm good at following the money and I'm good at I'm I'm really good at digging up the dirt that I think a lot of these war profiteers don't want dug up. Um, So so my value add in terms of stopping us or helping helping to prevent the next foolish war um is doing what I do. It it it's identifying those those foreign influence operations that, that are that are trying to lead the US astray. Um and it's calling out some of the war profiteers uh who of course they're 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 engaging in lobbying and in in domestic influence campaigns of their own, whether it's from you know hiring lobbying firms themselves or you know investing in think tanks or, or other forms of influence that there's a huge war profiteering industry uh, that i that i think w- we need more people frankly to to call out everything that they're doing to try and drive the, the u.s to more foreign wars
0: you know one last point on that before we kind of move on to some more detail um we had uh, ali sufon on the pod maybe two or three guests ago you know, FBI, Mm anti-torture, al-Qaeda guy, you know, I mean, al-Qaeda investigator, Lebanese-American. And, you know, so in prepping for that, I think me and Henry both, like, (laughs) re-looked at the Looming Tower book, the Looming Tower Hulu series, and, you know, uh, other stuff that he's done in either nonfiction or fiction. And one of the things that jumps out uh, in some of his narrative and definitely in the fictional representations or the, you know, fictional representations of the truth is, Right after 9-11, this like immediate day of pivot to making getting the Saudis out of the country a top priority. And right. uh, and so maybe, um, you know, in, you know, touching on that or not uh, or pivoting from that, you know, why, why Saudi Arabia you know like I mean it, it sounds so obvious to people who are in the know but I think that the number of people that are in the know are are not that high especially you know among some of our listeners We're probably even more so widespread like you said you're still working on the Saudi thing and there's probably good reason for that so like why Saudi Arabia why is this a problem in a very general sense yeah that's
1: uh, that's a great question and um, I I I think you, you, you know when you're talking about 9/11, you you, you have to I, I think start with the, with the basic recognition that 15 of the 19 hijackers were were from Saudi Arabia. You know, o, o, Osama bin Laden himself was a Saudi. Uh, you, you know, so the, the the impetus for this overwhelmingly comes from Saudi Arabia, and so I think the the you know if this were in a court of law, to me, it's almost like so, Saudi Arabia is is gonna have to convince me that they're not guilty. And so it, every, you know, cause all the evidence points to Saudi Arabia, you, you know, we know where these folks came from. Um, so w- what happens next I think is even more jarring because of that, because you do have all these Saudi nationals that are flowing out of the country. Um, and, and, and you do really, you, you have this very, very concerted campaign to, to get Saudi Arabia kind of off the hook for what happened, and they did. You, you, you know, if you look at some of the uh, uh, you know public opinion from back then, you know Saudi Arabia does take a hit in 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 terms of their you know America's preference for them. But 10 years later, uh, most Americans have completely forgotten that the, that the Saudis were actually were, were the Saudi citizens at least were actually responsible for for 9/11. And I think a big part of that, in addition to the lobbying campaign, in addition to everything uh, that, that the Saudi royals do to maintain favor in Washington, uh, the, the, there were very strong economic interests for the U.S. to play nice with Saudi Arabia. And, and we said it a lot then. But, it's, you know, it's the oil, frankly, you know, the U.S. wanted to keep relations uh, going steady with Saudi Arabia, wanted to keep oil prices down, want to make sure that, that oil kept flowing. Um, and so in many ways, they were they were really willing to bend over backwards for Saudi Arabia. Um, it, it, and frankly, they, they they haven't stopped. And, and, and you look at the, the Trump administration was the epitome of this in um, just you know, bending over backwards uh, to, to do everything we could uh, to, to cater to Saudi Arabia from you know, turning a blind eye to the war in Yemen uh, to increasing arms sales to Saudi Arabia. And and just Trump going to Saudi Arabia and just really singing the praises of of a regime that continues to be, you know, a gross human rights abuser, destabilizing the Middle East with the war in Yemen, Uh, Syria, too, not to mention there. Um, And, and of course, the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, And then even with all that stuff, everything that the Saudis did they really weren't punished. They, 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 there really hasn't been any serious uh, you, you know, reprisals from the US to punish Saudi Arabia for what it's done. And, and I still think the reason I still focus on them is because that, that is by and large a product of, of their, frankly, highly successful influence operation that they're still running in America.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt that that is that has always been the elephant in the room. And I mean, I remember reading I was in the army. I was I may have been a cadet, you know, reading like House of Bush, House of Saad, you know, these Mm. books. And um, there was a moment where the many in the foreign policy establishment, especially once there was kind of a pivot away from Bush, started to say things like, oh, it's it's too simplistic to say no blood for oil. You know, it's not all about oil. That's like such a surface level argument. But I think that what you're bringing into the analysis and what you just said is that, well, look, oil was oil and energy and strategic location were always a prime factor. It's just that the way that that works isn't as clear cut, maybe as, you know, some folks say, but let us not forget that that in fact if you kind of, you know, scratch away the surface, you take a little sandpaper to the lingo, mm-hmm. you know, that's what's there. And I think that that's right. uh, pretty important. So, um, yeah. So, uh, Henry, talk us, take us through uh, just, you know, the your general questions on uh, general foreign policy influence or foreign actor influence. Because I, I think this goes so much deeper. And of course, societies will keep coming up, but there's so much to it.
2: So one thing I, um, noticed going through it and, uh, you know, I, 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 I try to look at base level stuff partly because I, I I don't have the, the brain space that Danny does. Um, but that we, we are, you know, it's so easy to, to miss the simplicity of certain, certain things. And so, um, my question for you, Ben, is it, I saw mentioned about, um, Contributions or, or connections to the office of the U.S. Secretary of Defense, and c- could you talk us through that a little bit about like what kind of stuff does the SecDef's office need lobbying for? Need these connections? Need these uh, these kind of strings to pull on?
1: Oh, I, I it's a great great question, um, and I. I, I, I rarely get to talk about this so I'm glad you I'm glad you asked it but I I think everybody asks well you, I always get asked well you know who who's the most influential lobby you know who, who gets it who gets it done the best for them? you know is it um you, you know is it the Saudis or is it Israel is it somebody else and I <laughs> I often will stop them in their tracks and I'll say no it's it, it's the Department of Defense uh, <laughs> the, the Department of Defense is is by far the best lobbying firm in Washington D.C. Um, and the reason for that, in 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 particularly the office of the Secretary of Defense, um, in, 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 in the chiefs of all the services, they, they, they're just incredibly adept uh, at working the Hill uh, to to get the budgets that they want. And and, and for them, I think the, the 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 results speak for themselves. If you if you look at the DoD budget. Um, despite, I think, what some of my friends at the Heritage Foundation might say, um, the the DoD budget right now is is near historic highs. Um, And and, and in fact, the the historic highs were uh, towards the beginning of the Obama administration, you know, 2010, 2011, uh, were historical highs. But we're close to that still. And yet people are still crying about the DoD budget being low. And a big part of that is that the Secretary of Defense um and and all those folks uh you know policy folks over there they spend a good bit of time uh working the hill having meetings with folks on the hill and it's very uh, we we could have a whole another podcast on, on and i'd be very curious to hear both of your thoughts on the the civilian military divide right now and the the problem that i see is that i don't i don't really think that congress is Holding up its end of the bargain on congressional oversight of the military. What I my experience and seeing folks on the Hill is is that they if a general says it, they will roll over and believe it, hands down. Even if it's, you know, something just as ridiculous as the, you know, the F-35 is perfectly fine and it's not wasting any money. <laughs> you know, a general says that, a, a member of Congress says, well, okay, you know, you know I guess I got to believe you that one of the worst, you know, the biggest waste of money in military acquisition history, you know, you know it's, it's perfectly fine. Uh, but the, there's just this level of trust right now. Um, or it, it, it's beyond trust. It's beyond it, it's sort of blindly believing anything that's told to them uh, by a military officer i think congress has a duty um they, they, they literally have you know a constitutional oversight role and, and i really think when it comes to dod right now that they are blowing that oversight role
2: because we, we looking through the report you know we um there's, there's sections for the Air Force and there's sections for the Army and the Marine Corps. But we don't, we don't think of DOD as being a, a beast onto itself, that it can do some of its own things separate from the branches, and that if you didn't know to ask about that, you, you just wouldn't hear about it. Um, the other one I found, and, and this wasn't surprising to me, um, was uh, the Department of Homeland Security. How big of a, a slice of pie that that has in terms of uh, in terms of the lobbying? Um, so uh, we talked to us a little bit about the nature of funding in terms of that it's all voluntary. That the that what we find out from these institutions is what they choose to tell us, not what the law says they're required to provide. And then I'm sure that goes to your. Congressional oversight as well.
1: Sure, yeah, yeah. The um, the, the the Homeland Security funding was was, was absolutely interesting. And um, to to be clear about that funding, the, the the funding they were talking about is going to the um, the, the the think tanks. In in uh, a, a big chunk of that that Homeland Security money um, was going to the the RAND Corporation and. I imagine a lot of your listeners are, are familiar with RAND, but for, for those who aren't, the RAND Corporation is, is effectively, it's is kind of colloquially called the DOD's think tank. Uh, this is a place where folks in the DOD can go to, uh, and, and, and it's, it's many parts, many, many parts of it are, are these, these federally funded um, uh, research centers that, that, that are in some cases exclusively funded uh, by the DOD. Um, and, and they're designed to sort of be like kind of like the, the brainiacs for DoD, where, where DoD can go to, can pay them some money to do these studies on uh, you, you, just, you know, just about anything under the sun, you know, climate change or, you know, uh, uh, Arctic security issues, you, you name it, and Rand's done a, a study on it. In they their good studies, I, I I find little fault with with the studies that that Rand conducts, uh, whether it's for DoD or whether it's for the, the, the Department of Homeland Security. They're good, uh, they're good objective researchers, I think. Um, but at the end of the, the day, there's a sort of uh, there's a sort of selection bias coming in about which studies that they'll do. Um, in, in, in other words, DOD is only gonna pay for certain kinds of studies. And so e- even if the work itself is you know, purely objective and, and it's good, it's unbiased, um, there's a built-in bias in that uh, you, you know, us peaceniks, we already mentioned Code Pink earlier, uh, you know, Medea Benjamin is not funding too many RAND studies. I don't know that, I would be surprised if she's ever funded a single uh, RAND study. Uh, so, so, so there's this inherent bias built in where you, you're not having, you know, pacifists uh, that, that, that are funding studies or, or that are driving um, the, the research agenda for, for these think tanks. And, and, and Rand's the epitome of it. Um, but, but some of the other think tanks are right in there, too. You know, whether it's, you know, some of the ones that got less funding than Rand did, you know, the Center for New American Security uh, uh, or CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, they both got millions of dollars too from uh, the U.S. government and defense contractors, and, and you see a similar bias in the work that they're doing too. You know, it's very, it's very heavily DoD focused, and particularly for those two think tanks, you can see that some of the work just, at least to me, seems to, you know, be very biased towards uh, a, a more militarized U.S. foreign policy and, and more uh, defense spending.
2: So the idea that um, that any kind of uh, non-offensive action, those kind of studies, they simply wouldn't show up.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah you, you 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 just don't you just don't see those studies about the 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 value of what if we didn't go to war or or what if we didn't increase what if there was a way to re- reduce. The 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 threat of China. What would the economic benefits be of that? Or how much money could we save um, if we didn't keep raising tensions with Iran? Um, you, you, you don't see these studies of these trade offs for you, you know these alternative you know more peaceful paths. Those studies just aren't being done, or, or they're certainly not being done by a lot of these think tanks. You. You know, you get some of those from from outside of it, organizations like the Brown, the the Cost of War Project, of course, is a a great example of this. Um, But having studies that show you the value of peace are incredibly rare because the, the war profiteers are funding most of these studies.
0: And Ben, you know, you're on staff at CIP, I'm a senior fellow there. Uh, you probably have you know more knowledge of the internal kind of workings of CIP. but I noticed in you know one of the next reports we're going to talk about my favorite right uh, or recent favorite on the think tank funding, uh, you looked into the fit the top 50 think tanks, right what's what's considered by a number of different measures, the top 50 think tanks in America. I noticed that that are, think tank right uh cip wasn't on that list and so uh i was wondering you know maybe you could kind of just you know as a way of transition talk about how like yes you know you're in the think tank world but what are the differences in terms of funding source you know you don't have to get into a ton of detail but what are the differences in funding source for a place like cip versus a place like rand or the two favorites the archetypal favorites in fact uh, of the Biden transition team, for example, which, as you mentioned, uh, the two tanks of CNAS and CSIS. So, you know, what's the difference, and what's, and, and I guess the obvious, what's the implication of that?
1: Yeah, there, there's it's a great question, and, and there's there's so many differences, and and, and it really really does start. I, I one takeaway I hope folks have from the think tank funding report is that funding matters, and it in very in in, in many, many ways, the the funding a think tank gets can drive that think tank's work. It can drive that think tank's conclusions of its work. And in that, its work is designed to influence U.S. foreign policy um, or or U.S. domestic policy and, and depending on the think tank too. And so what we see with comparing a place like CIP to, you know, think tanks like that, C- CIP right off the bat um, doesn't accept corporate money, no corporate money whatsoever. And so we're for, for, forget defense contractor money. Uh, CIP doesn't take money from, you, you know, Google, uh, you, you know, micro, none of the tech companies, uh, none of the big oil and gas companies, no big Wall Street firms, uh, no lobbying firms for that matter. Um, None of that, the the Fortune 500, uh, you know, is off our radar that it's just not a funding source uh, that that, that we will accept money from. Uh, We also, my my program specifically will will not take any foreign government money. Um, In fact, CIP only has uh, one foreign government donor um, and that's the government of Norway who gives uh, some money to a CIP program called Mighty Earth uh, to do some environmental work. and, the, and other than that, CIP doesn't get any foreign government money either. And it, as I found out in two different reports this year, if you take out both of those sources of money, foreign government funding and uh, U.S. government and defense contractor funding, those businesses, well, that's over a billion dollars in funding. It's so around $1.2 billion in funding. That you're you're eliminated in, in in the past six years. So what that then means for CIP is that CIP remains small. Uh, you, you, you know we're a small think tank. I mean especially compared to places like uh, CNAS and, and, and CSIS, um, they, they dwarf us in size. Um, and a big part of that is because they have such a larger funding base that they can pull from. But then that's where I think, at least I guess I'm biased, uh, being a CIP uh, fellow, I think that's where their advantage ends, um, because, you know, with that funding, there there come strings attached. And now they they would debate me about, you know, how extensive those strings are, that, that sort of thing. Sure. And, and you know, all, all the think tanks that we talk to, they have, you know, they claim to have rigorous conflict of interest policies. Sure, that's all well and good. Um, But but my challenge would be to them is to keep writing reports that are critical of one of your funders and then see how long they keep funding you. And the answer is not long. And we've seen this with think tanks before. uh, and, And it's very obvious how the system works. So the advantage for a place like CIP, then, for folks like Danny and I, is uh, well, big disadvantage right off the bat. We don't have their salaries. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't have these nice big houses and you know fancy cars that they do and everything. Uh, but we have a huge advantage in our research: is that we don't have to cater uh, to some foreign government's interests. We don't have to do the the whims of a of, of a defense contractor. Um, And we can say things that are critical about the U.S. government, too, because we're not relying on them for funding either. Um, And so it really provides us with a level of intellectual freedom and intellectual objectivity that the the folks at these other think tanks just don't have. And at the end of the day, for Danny and I, I know we're for for the both of us, um, we can sleep well at night knowing that the work we do, you know, we're not doing at, at the behest of some big uh you some big corporation or some foreign power. We're we're doing the work we do uh because we think it's right
2: the guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone whom you might think would be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and inflicts on minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment and share this with them. Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters, helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing all the new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are Will Arends, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Jason, Zach H., Ren Jacob, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash fortress on a hill. Or please check out our awesome store on spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. The okay. link is in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the podcast.
0: So let's. And it's true. You know, we talked about that the other day on our call. Like you know there's no <laughs> talk about uh, self-righteous classic self self-righteous standing you know but there's this there is this notion that there, you know there isn't a price on looking yourself in the mirror can't put a price on price on that but also even just in the practical sense i mean i've found and i imagine you have too that there's a there's solace and and there's benefit personally to the you know independence of like knowing that you don't have to couch everything you write and everything you say, mm-hmm. even if it's indirectly through concern that, man, you know, maybe this is going to upset the bosses because they may not say it, but the bosses are, you know, linked to these folks, not just financially, but maybe like professionally, socially, cocktail party wise, you know, uh, right. as Kelly Blayhouse wrote about like the people who were putting together the surge uh, in uh, in Afghanistan, many of whom, are about to re-enter the administration. Uh, she talked about going to a party, a, a cocktail party of like generals and these civilian national security officials, and she re- referred to the to the the women as a uh, hawks who were in smart skirts, you know. But you know, <laughs> I love that <laughs> line, and Scott Horton quotes it all the time. But uh, you know, there there's there's something to that, and and I think what you're talking about here is that there, there are. Direct and there are indirect ramifications to that funding. It's a delusion to think that that you know these groups stay completely independent. And yet, when I was you know doing my research, building on yours, I mean, you note that you know whether it's the Atlantic Council or CSIS or CNAS or Brookings. I mean, there's always a note. And I think you've probably, and I think you've said you've sort of received things like this from their public affairs officials. But you know, correct me if I'm wrong. That mm-hmm. oh no 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 like. Regardless of funding, like we are completely like scholarly and independent, and it 's almost like the lady doth protest too much a bit and <laughs> and I think this is interesting, so I guess pivoting now i mean your report is and we 're going to link to it you know your report is just un unflinching in its uh, in its statistics and its evidence i mean it 's so careful about. Making sure that everything's right, I mean, you tack towards the side of caution and the low estimates and all this mm-hmm. and and I love that, right? I'm a researcher too. I mean, it's like my favorite thing to do is go on like a Wikipedia spiral, but with real sources, uh, mm-hmm. which is how people like you and I end up in this work. but what you know in practice, and you do a little of this in the report, and I know you've done it in articles in practice, you know whether anecdotally or generally, what does this look like? What does the influence? look like how does it affect the bottom line of policy and what is done in the name whether we know it or think about it or not in the name of the american people
1: yeah the 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 thing about the funding in in going through and looking at, at all of it and then and, and that's really where Really, where we started with this report and in the preceding the the, the prequel, I guess on on foreign funding of think tanks uh, was a very similar approach. We started by saying we we just want to get the money. We want to we want to for the for for the first time we we want to add up all this money and, and we want to. We want to get it from all the sources we can. And, and, and that included me sending some pretty nice emails, I thought, to, to these think tanks and, you know, asking them if the information we had was correct. Um, and if, you know, they had more information to, to, to provide and, you know, getting confirmation of all this stuff. Um, and it might surprise folks today. I, I did have some, you know, pretty good conversations with, uh, with some folks at think tanks, you know, about their funding and about these issues too, to, to, to sort of get their side of the story. we really started we wanted to have we wanted to know that we had the best available data out there on on these top 50 think tanks and i i I feel very confident that we did and i feel very confident because uh in in the case of both reports i got from uh from communications directors at those think tanks who were angry emails that said you know you claim in your report that we get funding from you know xyz country or, or this defense contractor or that you know we don't have any records of that. You know, where are you pulling this information from? Uh, and then I, I, send, I send back a very polite email that says, well, you know, he, he, here's our source from it. And that source is your website <laughs> and it, or it's in your own annual report. It's on page, you know, 43. And, you know, here, here's the exact uh, digits that we found. So we, in many cases, we were able to provide these think tanks with, I think, even more transparency than, than they, they knew they had. Um, so starting it from that point to us was, was incredibly important um, because then we could do what was actually my favorite part about it is trying to connect the dots with this. So once we had the funding, then we went back and took a real hard, hard look at what did these think tanks do? What, what did they do that was you know, related to some of these funders? What, what, what did they put out that might have been of interest to them? Um, and almost to a, to, to a think tank, we found that we always found evidence of reports that that, that seemed you know, overwhelmingly to to side with the funders interest. And, you know, wh- whether that was you know, recommending uh, arms sales to a foreign government that that had funded them uh, or whether that was recommending uh, buying more of a weapon that a defense contractor who funds them uh, manufactures. We we found some very, very clear linkages. We we thought, or you you know, you can call them coincidental, whatever you want. uh, But to us, it seemed very clear that the 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 thrust of the reports coming out of think tanks does appear to be very much in line with the funding that those think tanks are getting. And this is true. We 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 put out a series of op-eds, and I know you you have too, Danny, on. Everything from um, the ICBM lobby, ICBM manufacturers, and you know the nuclear modernization. You know, a lot of the think tanks that are advocating for that, you know, they're funded by the exact same defense contractors that are going to benefit from it. Um, when it comes to arms sales to to foreign countries, if you see a think tank really out there advocating for it, uh, chances are they're getting some funding from that very government that's going to be the recipient of that arms sale. So it, it, again, it really didn't. To go back to my very opening comments, it, it it really doesn't matter what the foreign policy issue is. Chances are there there is there is funding behind it that's that's driving that U.S. foreign policy in that direction, um, and that may have nothing to do with whatever the U.S. national security interest is. This is purely in the interest of of those paymasters.
0: So I think this is important and one of the things that struck me about the Think Tank report, especially as I, as I read it sort of repeatedly actually, was that, you know, there's, um, there's a real connection between foreign influence and defense contractor influence and U.S. government influence. Uh, on these issues. And I think you really raised that very well in this particular report, because they're not discreet. And most things rarely are discreet. And and I started looking uh, largely motivated by this report, which really just was perfectly timed. I mean, I don't know if you had some sort of like insider knowledge, you know, uh, or, you know, or any of that. But I mean, it's unbelievable, because as this team gets uh, announced you know as this team gets announced from Biden it's like you couldn't have built it any better because the the very think tanks that you're looking at right so CNAS and CSIS are the second and sixth right i believe from your report the second and sixth highest recipients of us government and defense contractor funding and then you know i started digging into Michelle Flournoy, because you know I'm a little bit obsessed with the uh, the Biden Bros and Sis coming in, and you know you find out in you know open source reporting from a number of different sources that you know the odds-on favorite for Secretary of Defense was exchanging emails with like the UAE ambassador, pitching a project to you know write a report on whether the you know, to the extent to which the U.S. should follow the non-binding multilateral kind of control agreement on drones and missile technology. And then, of course, wouldn't you know, CNAS receives 250K on the report that argues for amending the agreement to allow, you know, the UAE to buy these drones. And then, of course, the Trump administration, which is supposedly the sworn enemy of Florida and company, you know, does this very thing. And so what struck me about that was like, wow, you know there is such a connection between the general work that your initiative does that you've spent so much time on, you know, in terms of scholarship and public advocacy in your career, and then the funding report. And so maybe you Mm -hmm. could dig in a little more on, on that aspect of the, the nexus between the two, the inextricable link.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think that this is where it really gets from, from kind of, 2D muckraking to 3D chess um, where we're trying to get to the heart of all these different influences. And, and, and you know, there's all these avenues for influence, right, whether there's, there's lobbying firms, um, you know, I think think tanks are another key part of it. Uh, we, we haven't even talked about higher education now and fo- foreign governments are, are, are spending billions of dollars at, at, at U.S. colleges and universities, too, trying to garner influence there. That's a whole other can of worms um and and then we have the you have these great nexus between uh the the weapons manufacturers that are making weapons that they, they of course want to and do sell to foreign governments um and we've seen this with with the saudis previously and very recently with the united arab emirates um we know all of the the weapons manufacturers uh that that are going to be part of this deal and so you, you, you know it's the F35 it's drones um the folks that are making these weapons you know we know they're lobbying for this arms sale uh, but guess who else is too the, the United Arab Emirates in in the UAE has has one of the most uh powerful and influential uh foreign lobbies in the US and so when you combine all that firepower. Um, if, if I remember right, last year, the, the UAE spent almost $20 million on, on lobbying and PR firms registered under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Combine that with an arms industry um, who's spending similar amounts of money, too, and you sort of get this, you know, weapons spreading transformer uh, of influence that becomes really, really hard to stop. And I, I think we're seeing it now with this UAE arms sale and, you know, we're I think the progressive community is putting up a good fight against this arms sale. Um, but it's really again, it's David versus Goliath. They, they have you know armies of lobbyists um, and, and, and we just don't have the numbers to, to go up against them. But, but I think hopefully on this, we're, we're, we're at a point, at least on this specific deal, where most members of Congress, like, sort of get it, how, how this could be really dangerous uh, to give the, the United Arab Emirates F-35s in armed drones. Uh, they've seen what the UAE did in Yemen, um, and, you know, they see what the UAE does at home, frankly, with the human rights issues there. So I think, you know, hoping maybe there's enough members of Congress there that, that can push back on this trifecta of, of kind of war, war profiteering, you know, weapons building influence. Um, but it's really it's frankly like it, it's emblematic of, of the industry as a whole. There's there's all these connects connections and, and, and these nexuses that that bring together the, these individually, hugely powerful lobbying firms. Um, and then they combine forces to to, to push these initiatives through. Uh, and they can become incredibly hard to stop because of it. Um, but on the flip side of that, uh, for me uh, these are the most fun because you know I can I can track all of these different influences so it's just a matter of you you know connecting all the dots here and identifying all these influences um, and, and, and trying to call folks out when they're when they're engaging in some of this behavior that, well, they, they probably shouldn't be, or at the very least, I really don't think it's in in the interest of of America to have the United Arab Emirates with armed drones anytime soon. And I'll just say, Danny, one note on top of that, the the the, the Michelle, Michelle Flournoy thing. I I had been following her uh, since her time at CNAS. and um, you, you know, she's uh i i really just want to push back real quickly on folks who think like we we shouldn't be critical of some of the biden administration and i, I think i first and foremost i i i you know I'm, I'm 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 a progressive and so you know i'm much much happier to see biden and very qualified biden folks coming in uh i'm, I'm very happy to see them coming in versus the uh, trump administration uh, w- which i think was awful for many many reasons um but at the same time i I don't think it serves anyone if we just unflinchingly accept any nominee just because they're a Biden nominee. I I think it's very important for folks to, to take a long, hard look at these folks' qualifications. And many of them are very, very qualified too. But I think we have every right to call out their connections with the arms industry. And we have every right to call out their connections uh, with foreign governments. And Michelle Flournoy was the, she was at the perfect nexus of this to me. Um, Cause while she was at CNAS, um, she, she, as you mentioned, she accepted uh, $250,000 CNAS did accepted $250,000 to write this study uh, that, that, that was about drones. And of course the study comes out and it says, you know, recommends uh, among other things to give the UAE armed drones um, and then going forward, of course, we, we, we've seen these past few months uh, the UAE is now looks to be on track to get those armed drones. Um, and, and so I think we have a right to be critical of, of Michelle Flournoy for at least in, in, in some way kind of being one of the original advocates for that deal and in helping to pave the way for the UAE to get to the point where, where they could even be lobbying. Uh, for a deal like this and so you know you, you know whether that means michelle or should or should not be secretary of defense i don't know that, that, that that's a decision for somebody else uh, but but as for me ben freeman um uh you, you can sure as heck bet i'm going to tell people uh, at least about her connections with that foreign government and i would do i, I did the exact same thing with the trump administration uh, and i'll do it through, throughout the biden administration too
0: yeah i, I think that you raise a really important point about when is, when is critique, when is uh, a critical eye appropriate? And I think the answer is almost always, right? I mean, uh, if we're, if you're going to be intellectually and ethically consistent, then it's important to raise questions and the qualification point, you know, is something that I can get a little radical on. And so, you know, I'll often say that you know these folks are eminently qualified, uh only I reject the cult of qualification or I reject the terms of the qualification cults gain. you know, in other words like i'm I'm concerned, and this is personal opinion, I'm interested in your thoughts on it. I'm concerned by the notion that uh previous complicity and some often largely nefarious actions. Uh, Even if they are, you know, a gradation below uh, certain Bush ones, uh, some Trump ones or most Bush ones, some Trump ones, uh, even if they're preferable in a comparative sense, when we talk lesser evils, the idea that there aren't other qualified, if we change the terms of that discussion, that there aren't other qualified figures who could serve uh, in the National Security Council, uh, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, who who don't have this uh, this taint, right? And 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 the sad truth is maybe there really aren't that many. Maybe that this maybe this game that you've been describing, this one that you've been unearthing, this one that you've been doing just uh, unflinching research on, is such is so uh, established that it is actually difficult to find quote qualified people that that aren't tainted that don't carry some of this with them. Uh, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. You know, as kind of a last point on this issue with the transition on, you know, do you think that we frame it in such a way? And I guess this is a leading question, but I mean, I really want to know what you think. Do, do you think that we frame uh, who is a viable candidate uh, in such a way that it maybe, you know, reduces the numbers available or kind of cuts other folks out of the game?
1: Yeah, I, 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 I think you're, you're really on to something here. And I, I, I had just it's fascinating to hear you say that because I had. Sort of in my own world and in my own research, I viewed I, I what, what I now think is the, is the same concept, uh, but, but but I looked at it as you all of this, whether it's you know somebody working at a think tank or you know being an industry lobbyist or, 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 or working um, working at DOD, uh, you know, as all kind of part of this like sphere of of, of, of influence, all all this like kind of connected web and 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 you could stay in it and to your earlier point about the uh, dinner parties you could keep getting invited to the dinner parties um as long as you stayed on message you know you can you 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 can tack a little bit this way or a little bit that way but but fundamentally if you wanna if you want to keep getting invited to the game you 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 have to stay on the dod message and whether you, you you know that's uh you know, that's a DOD message about, um, you you, you know, the the Asia pivot or, you you know, kind of all the fear mongering that's going on uh, around China right now, whatever the issue of the day is, as long as you stay, you know, within relative bounds around that, uh, then you're eligible. And, you you know, you can, you you know, you you would be, you know, in the hunt for some of these nominations. Um, But I think you're exactly right that if you if, if you get outside of that frame and, and you start questioning some of uh, questioning some of these things you know offering you know, alternative approaches to u.s foreign policy more frankly more peaceful foreign policies that, that don't require as much DoD spending would, would reduce uh, the revenue that defense contractors are getting uh, you, you start recommending things like that. And you, you can watch your dinner invites uh, go down to nothing and, and literally your ticket to the party will go away. And, and, and that will certainly mean that they won't consider you for uh, any of these political appointments.
2: So uh, I'm just going to throw this out there because it's just it's in my brain. Um, what would you fellas say to somebody like. Andy basevich that where would he fit into this invited to dinner category just on on what you guys know of his uh, belief in policy and such
1: I would I I, I, I mean, I think he would get invited and he would get invited. And I, I think that this is really like a testament to the Quincy Institute and, and, and what they're doing there now is they're really creating a space, a good intellectual space to to have conversations about restraint, to have conversations about non-intervention. Um, and, and I think it's it, it, it's a kudos to them that somebody like andy basevich you know would be at these tables now and, and he probably would be you know before to some tables um but i think now more than ever he would be welcomed at those tables and, and i think still too the 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 cato institute is still doing some great work on uh you know having these conversations you know about restraint about non-intervention um they're in you know in some ways that they, they are their own tables but You know, there are maybe some exceptions out there.
0: Well, I've got it. I've got the team. You know, Biden says that he wants a a bit of a bipartisan unity government. Right. He wants uh, experienced technocrats and practitioners. I've got it now. Right. Secretary of State Larry Wilkerson. Secretary of Defense Andrew Basevich. And look, we need some, we need some like still Republicans, National Security Advisor Danny Davis. Problem solved, world's problem solved. Ben, Henry, and Danny. It's done. Joe, Uncle Joe, who are whoever translates English for you today uh i know i know but i mean seriously uh, the, there are other voices and and those are folks that we kind of know and uh, certainly i do and mm-hmm. and all that and there's other voices out there in the the academic community and uh but the idea of like the practitioner meets the scholar i do think that there are other voices and probably my reach in in knowledge of those folks is uh is, is extremely limited mm-hmm. so i think that's an important mm-hmm. question that you ask henry
1: can I just I I would like to tack onto that real quick and, and give a shameless plug to CIP's uh, Sus- Sustainable Defense Task Force, which I co chaired with our colleague uh, Bill Hartung, and in that, that that was a project that we did um, almost two years ago now. Um, we brought together kind of the 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 folks like this the and, 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 and you actually reminded me, Danny, with uh, Larry Wilkerson. He he's on our task of course, uh, Larry Corb is too. Um, and, 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 you know, we, we had Republicans and Democrats, uh, you know, Gordon Adams, um, Amy Belasco from the, the Congressional Research Service, we had a really good um, mix of folks from from both sides of the aisle but kind of the voices that you, you you wouldn't hear at some of these dinner parties but but folks with very different experiences who we we, we all brought together and we said well, what can we do differently like we're 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 all sort of whining about the way it's done you know how can we do this differently um and we laid it out in in, in a very short 90 page paper um, but there's a summary on it on, on, on our yeah, right. on our website that you can check out. Um, but it really was it was designed to get to, to to get to this exact point here. And you know, as good as that was, you know, I, I would I would love if other groups would do that too. You know, the more of those we get out there in the ecosphere, you know, the better the conversations we can have are.
0: Yeah. No. I mean, absolutely. Uh, and and I think that. Uh... There is there is more just like there's more agreement on foreign and war policy between Republicans and Democrats than they make out, right? There is a bipartisan consensus for interventionism at least, or expeditionary posture. You know, there's also more agreement uh in the opposition, right? In the often silenced or, you know, Quincy's having a real great effect, and Cato's always been kind of stalwart on this. But overall, I think, you know, kind of a generally like ignored or silenced or sidelined opposition there's always been and there remains more agreement between say libertarians and progressives i mean Mm -hmm. uh, i did a salon uh with um oh i forgot the name of of the organization i hate myself for but uh it was about danny davis's book and um and they asked matt ho and i to come on and do like a five to ten minute plug kind of building on danny davis's book right and uh You know, I mean, if you've seen Danny Davis, you've seen him on Fox News. He'll tell you whether you you know you don't have to ask Danny to tell you that he remains generally a Republican. Um, He's kind of fierce about it, and and I think uh, it's deeply held. And I also think that there's you know value in in saying, listen, you know, um, uh, there's a lot of us who agree about this who come from different backgrounds. But you know, it's so interesting because you know the three of us are speaking on this thing, and it struck me that. We've got Danny Davis who remains a Republican and definitely has like conservative instincts or reflexes. At least you've got uh, me who, I mean, depending on who you ask is definitely radical, uh, proclaims himself on the left, but is often hated by that same left. Uh, And then you got Matt Ho who's like in divinity school to be like a, like buddhist divinity school or or there's probably a better term for it right and is and is out on a different different kind but very similar left as me and it's like wow we're all here having this discussion and so i think that there's a lot of value in that um i posted because you know i am who i am right i posted something yesterday about uh you know Liber, you know, dear libertarians and progressive anti-war folks, remember that, you know, Raekwon and Ghostface Killer of the Wu-Tang Clan used to shoot at each other's apartment projects before they were in the greatest hip hop collective of all time. You know, uh, this is important. And, and I think that in the scholarly community, it's, it's, a, it's a credit to CIP, of course, that there's, there are folks that are advising and involved and invited to the table who come from these variety of backgrounds and you know for one last kind of pivot and and a plug but like an important plug I think that your work in general shows we're not talking necessarily about like a pol- a political kind of spectrum per se although I think it's largely completely not uh, apolitical it's mostly factual regardless of your own personal views but the mm-hmm. breadth I mean, the depth of the reports is obvious. And you talked about 90 pages in that last one. I mean, the the think tank report is, you know, uh, dozens of pages, but breadth of topics, you know, I mean, obviously you do foreign influence, transparency stuff, you've done a lot of focus on Saudi Arabia, but, you know, the latest report that really dropped like four or five days ago, since we're recording today on the 24th was on Japan's influence in America. And, and 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 I just I just want to ask you to like kind of briefly give us like the, the 101 on that because I, I think that most Americans have forgotten about the connection, the deep connection of the United States to the Japanese and the World War II. And they certainly don't see no, and nor that I'm saying that that's what the report concludes, but nor do they see like anything, anything odious at all, or anything concerning at all about like Japan and the United States. I mean, right. since the kind of gung ho '80s where there was this like concern that like Japan's going to take over and with their economics, they don't even get in the conversation anymore. So, what was that about? I guess.
1: Um. God, I, I mean, if nothing else, I, I would have just done it for all the reasons you just said there, just to just to surprise people. <laughs> That's all the motivation I need. Um, but all jokes aside on that, the the I, I, I think it is kind of for that reason, too, that that that, that folks in, in the in, in, in the fray of, you know, worrying about Russian influence, worrying about Chinese influence, which we should be very, very much worried about. I agree with all that. Um, but I think we, we, we've gotten, you know, maybe a little too focused on them. Um, and, and we've forgotten that some of these other countries, you know, who, who, who we can we consider allies, we consider to be our friends. Um, and, and heck Saudi Arabia and the UAE would fall into that category, too, in um, Japan, even next level up. The, these countries, too, our, our, our allies, sometimes they can lead us astray, too in um, their interests, just because they are our allies, doesn't mean their interests are always in line with our interests. And another thing about Japan, too, and, and, and I'll, 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 I'll give a spoiler to your or a little uh, teaser to your readers uh, or your listeners that our next report is actually on South Korea. And, and, and the reason we wanted to take a look at both of them year in and year out, those two countries are actually the biggest spenders uh, when it comes to foreign lobbying in the U.S year in and year out um they spend an, an incredible amount of money uh tens of millions of dollars they, they even dwarf the, the the saudi spending the emirati spending qataris it, it's not even close japan and south korea are, are far and away ahead and, and for japan what we what we found in the japan report was this this huge lobbying operation um a, a big chunk of it is driving uh, a greater militarization of U.S. foreign polish, policy uh, in, in the region there. Uh, you, know, you know, some of it's related to China, um, but a lot of it in Japan's case is just kind of, uh, you know, in their own sort of self-interest. Uh, J- Japan folks often forget, especially folks not in the military, uh, that, that the U.S. has tens of thousands of soldiers stationed on Japanese soil uh, in in, in mostly in Okinawa. Um, They're also a huge recipient of uh, US military sales as well. And so Japan is really big business for for defense contractors and and for uh, the Department of Defense. And so a lot of what Japan is doing with, with this lobbying operation it's actually not too dissimilar from what the Saudis are doing in, in, in many cases. They're, they're advocating for arms sales. They're, they're advocating to keep uh, U.S. soldiers on, on Japanese soil, to keep those bases there uh, and to get you know, the latest and greatest weapons, whether you know, it's a THAAD missile system um, or, or, or you know, just the latest uh, equipment that they need for the base there. Uh, They're hitting all those high notes and all of the big, uh, you know, foreign policy issues in in the region, too, from, you know, trade deals, TPP. uh, You you name it when it comes to economic issues, they're lobbying heavily on those. Um, And they're lobbying heavily here in the U.S. You know, we found we found some lobbyists were talking to uh, folks in in New York State about the the text that was being uh, provided in some public schools related to the Sea of Japan. Uh, and, you know, they had some qualms about it. So they wanted the textbook change. And we saw this it, the fascinating kind of local lobbying exchange on this. Uh, and, and the point of us highlighting it in the report is to show that they're so comprehensive that they'll hit the, the biggest foreign policy issue of the day. And the most mundane issue at a local level, you might have a Japanese foreign agent, you know, working on all of these different issues. Uh, And so it's really just extraordinary what Japan's doing here in the U.S. So I I would definitely encourage anybody listening to give that report a a read. It was even for a nerd like me who studies foreign influence for a living. uh, It it was eye opening.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I agree that there's there's a side of folks like. Uh, like us, I think, who are who are you know, tacked towards the geeky and just enjoy a research project. There is a like there's a tendency to be like, wow, there's 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 value in just the knowing and also in the surprising <laughs> and kind of poking. Uh, but it what's interesting about this Japan and South Korea factor is a that it is enormous. Uh, B, that the fact that it's enormous flies largely under the public radar and C, and probably most disturbingly, that all of it links so much and so relevantly to the drum up, acceleration and alarmism that's bipartisan surrounding new Cold War Theater 2, because there's going to be two fronts to this one. There already Mm -hmm. are. Uh, Theater 2, East Asia, right? And and China and all this, because they're so linked. And so you 've managed in your last two reports, if I can blow a little smoke up your intellectual ass I mean you've managed in the in the last two reports to basically show us uh, that from you know washington 's headquartered corridors of the defense and military government industry to the princely capitals of Arab autocrats and all the way on to the Korean Peninsula and you know the Japanese archipelago that that this is a a systemic uh, problem or at least a systemic issue one that requires attention and I really do think that someone could could read your just your last 3 4 5 reports and it would provide essentially a treasure trove for authors of columns of books to kind of go off of and so we're going to we're going to link uh, definitely to the last two uh, as well as of course just to your you know bio page at cip which for the listeners i mean you you can find everything there and again shameless plug for ben's colleagues and mine uh bill hartong who's a tom dispatch regular that i've spoken with in boston and is doing the arms control stuff and then the, the africa the newer africa program um and, 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 and so many others, I mean, check all of that out. And so, you know, as, as we wrap up now, Ben, I want to really just genuinely, because there's so much important stuff, give you an opportunity to, you know, raise anything else that's kind of on your mind, but also kind of close out with a, with just a, a brief run through of like what folks should do to check out your work and then the work of your just like tireless colleagues who don't get the attention that they often need.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, it, it, it's, it's just been great talking with you guys, number one. Um, I think if I had one takeaway or one thing I wanted to get back to is it, it was really something you said earlier, Danny, and, and, and it, it, it alluded to a point that I always like to remind people of, that the, this crazy industry that, that, that I study, the foreign influence industry, it's really one of the, the, the few areas in D.C. Uh, that is absolutely bipartisan. Um, the both in terms of the, the the targets of the influence the we in all these reports I've mentioned whether it's in Japan Saudi Arabia Qatar we see we see these lobbyists that are working for foreign governments they contact Democrats and Republicans uh, with just about equal frequency uh, the, the lobbyists themselves the, the many of these folks are, are revolving door folks um, and, and so they're they're both Republicans and Democrats too. Um, for example, I was I was taking a hard look at Egypt today, uh, and there's a firm, uh, Brownstein, Hyatt, uh, Farber Shrek, that, that just started representing uh, the government of Egypt. In uh, the two people that are heading up this operation, uh, one is former Congressman uh, Ed Royce, a re- Republican from California, uh, and the, his co-lead on it uh, is Nancy Pelosi's former chief of staff. Uh, so if that's not bipartisanship in Washington, uh, I, I don't know what is. So I assure you, if you're a partisan, uh, there is you, you can find some muck in our reports to go after the other side uh, or, or if you just think both sides are corrupt, uh, read any of uh, any of our reports and it will confirm that suspicion because it very much is both sides that, that, that are hard at work in, in this foreign influence field. And in terms of where you can track this down, go check out our website, please. Uh, you can find Danny's work there too uh, at internationalpolicy.org. In um, my program there is the Foreign Influence Transparency Initiative. You can check out all our reports there. Our most recent one the, uh, the, on the Japan lobby, uh, the one before that on US government defense contractor funding of think tanks. There's the foreign funding of think tanks there. There's the Qatar lobby, Saudi lobby, UAE lobby. Uh, we got all kinds of lobbies, uh, hotel lobbies, maybe, uh, but, but you can find all our great work there. And you can find me on Twitter at Ben Freeman, DC too. Uh, And and if I can help with any of the work that folks are doing out there, I'd be happy to, we we got more information than we know what to do with, frankly.
0: Yeah, Ben, thanks for that. And, you know, we're going to link to some of the key things, uh, do check it out. Um, you know, follow Ben on Twitter, check out the site check out the other scholars and uh, let this be for you. Hopefully what it's largely been for me, which is just, you know, a portal into uh, so much more, right? So, cause all of these different programs at CIP, they link to each other, they're related. Um, finding one scholar leads you to another. You'll start on CIP and you'll end up in a million other places cause there's so many important folks doing this work. And the more we can do, to foreground it the better so ben i just want to thank you again for coming on it's been a great chat i knew it would be i was looking forward to it especially after we spoke uh you know right up to both of our meetings and a little late last time we chatted over zoom and uh you know thanks for coming on on fortune hill i know we're gonna have you back if you're willing because i know you're gonna raise reports that are just (laughs) and and op-eds and stuff too that that are just so relevant and uh You know, it's just—it's just nice talking to you because of your scholarship and uh, just—just general character and uh, good dudeness, for lack of a better word. So thanks
2: again.
1: (laughs) Hey, thanks a lot, Danny, and thanks, Henry, for having me on. Man, this has been great. I'd love to come back on.
2: Yeah, great to talk to you, Ben.
0: All right. Well, listeners, keep uh, keep an eye out. We've got some more folks coming on. We've got uh, Vince Emanuel from Park Media. We're bringing Tom Secker back. Uh, I'm actively recruiting uh, Ben Norton from moderate rebels. The guest list is, uh, is just going to churn on from here. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz coming back again to talk some indigenous history and everything else. So stay tuned, keep following us, check out Patreon and thanks for listening.
2: We're on Twitter at Fortressana hill and also at facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not do